Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette for December 13, 2023. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. Headline on the front page today is Biden, colon, support for war waning. President warns about haphazard bombing as U.S. sends munitions. Israel and the United States on Tuesday showed their sharpest public disagreement yet over the conduct and future of the war against Hamas as the two allies became increasingly isolated by global calls for a ceasefire. The dispute emerged while Israeli forces carried out strikes across Gaza, crushing Palestinians in homes. President Joe Biden said he told Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu that Israel was losing international support because of its indiscriminate bombing and that Netanyahu should change his government, which is dominated by hard-right parties. Biden's comments came as the White House National Security Advisor heads to Israel this week to discuss with Netanyahu a timetable for the war and what happens if Hamas is defeated. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin will travel to Israel next week for a visit the Pentagon said aims to show U.S. support for Israel, but also to press the need to avoid more civilian casualties in Gaza. The war ignited by Hamas' October 7 attack into southern Israel already brought unprecedented death and destruction to the impoverished coastal enclave. With much of northern Gaza obliterated, more than 18,000 Palestinians killed, and over 80% of the population of 2.3 million pushed from their homes. The U.S. urged Israel to do more to reduce civilian casualties since it launched its invasion of southern Gaza at the beginning of the month, but the toll has continued to mount at seemingly the same dizzying rate. Biden's comments came even as his administration continues to give unwavering diplomatic and military support for the ongoing campaign in Gaza in the face of mounting international outrage. The UN Secretary General and Arab states rallied much of the international community behind calls for an immediate ceasefire, but the U.S. vetoed those efforts at the UN Security Council last week as it rushed tank munitions to Israel to allow it to maintain the offensive. A non-binding vote on a similar resolution at the General Assembly passed overwhelmingly on Tuesday. The vote demanding a ceasefire is largely symbolic, but it serves as an important barometer of world opinion. The vote in the 193-member world body was 153 in favor, 10 against, and 23 abstentions. The United States and Israel were joined in opposing the resolution by eight countries, Austria, Chechia, Guatemala, Liberia, Micronesia, Nauru, Papua New Guinea, and Paraguay. The healthcare system and humanitarian aid operations have collapsed in large parts of Gaza and aid workers warn of starvation and the spread of disease among displaced people in overcrowded shelters and tent camps. Gaza City and much of the surrounding north already suffered widespread destruction 
from more than two months of bombardment. Amid the rubble, Israeli ground troops are still locked in heavy combat with militant fighters, more than six weeks after soldiers invaded the north. Fierce clashes raged Tuesday in Gaza City's Zaytown and Shiaya neighborhoods, as well as Jambalaya, a densely built urban refugee camp, residents said. Tens of thousands of Palestinians remain in the north, huddled in homes or in UN schools turned shelters. As airstrikes and drones smash houses, first responders are unable to reach anyone buried in the wreckage, residents say. Outside Gaza City, Israeli troops blew up a school run by UNRWA, the or UNRWA, the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees, in the northern town of Beit Hanun. Footage posted online showed soldiers cheering as they watched the building collapse in a giant blast and pall of smoke. UNRWA Chief Philippe Lazzarini confirmed the demolition in a post on social media Tuesday, calling it outrageous. There was no immediate comment from the military. On Saturday, it said militants opened fire from inside an UNRWA school in the town. Israel launched the campaign after Hamas and other militants streamed into the south on October 7, <clears throat> killing some 1,200 people and taking about 240 others hostage, according to Israeli officials. About half of those hostages remain in captivity. Israel and the U.S. argue that any ceasefire that leaves Hamas in power would mean victory for the militant group, which has governed Gaza since 2007. But the two allies have also had differences over the timetable of the war and over how Gaza should be ruled in the future. Strikes overnight and into Tuesday in southern Gaza, where almost all of Gaza's population of 2.3 million is now crowded, killed dozens, according to hospital records. In central Gaza, the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Hospital in Deir el-Bala received the bodies of 33 people killed in strikes overnight, including 16 women and 4 children, according to hospital records. Many were killed in strikes that hit residential buildings in the built-up Magazi refugee camp. In the northern Gaza town of Beit Laia, Israeli forces stormed the Kamal Advan hospital, ordering all men, including medics, into the courtyard, said Ashraf al-Kidra, spokesman for the health ministry in Hamas-run Gaza. The hospital has 65 patients in intensive care and six newborns in incubators, the UN said. Some 3,000 displaced people are sheltering there with little food or water, it said. The military says it is rounding up men in northern Gaza as it searches for Hamas fighters. Photos and videos circulating online show groups of detainees stripped to their underwear, bound and blindfolded, and some who have been released say they were beaten and denied food and water. Also on the front page, an article entitled 2016 Vote Could Be Factor in Trump Election Case. To hear his lawyers tell it, 
Donald Trump was alarmed by Russia's interference in the 2016 election, motivated as president to focus on cybersecurity, and had a good faith basis four years later to worry that foreign actors had again meddled in the race. To federal prosecutors, 2016 is significant as the year that Trump spread misinformation about voter fraud and proved himself resistant to accepting the outcome of elections that might not go his way. Even though a trial set for next year in Washington is centered on Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election, lawyers on both sides have indicated their desire, for different purposes, to draw attention to the tumultuous presidential contest four years earlier as a way to help explain his state of mind after his loss to Democrat Joe Biden. When we're talking about someone's belief or mental state, there is always no one piece of evidence that is dispositive, said David Aaron, a former Justice Department national security prosecutor. There's usually multiple data points that each side will argue indicates one mental state or the other. The callback to the 2016 race is perhaps not surprising given the history-making events of that year, when Russian operatives hacked Democratic emails and orchestrated their release with what U.S. officials say was a goal of aiding Trump over his Democratic rival Hillary Clinton. The meddling and its aftermath thrust the topic of election security and faith in Democratic processes to the forefront of American discourse. It will ultimately be up to U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin to determine what evidence is admissible at trial and what materials defense lawyers are entitled to get from prosecutors as part of the information-gathering process known as discovery. Special Counsel Jack Smith's team says information about the 2016 election being sought by the defense is, quote, wholly irrelevant to the current case while telling Trump's lawyers and the judge that it wants to present evidence about Trump's history of claiming fraud. The interest in 2016 was laid bare in recent court filings, including one in which defense lawyers made a long-shot request to force prosecutors to turn over all materials, including a classified version of a U.S. intelligence assessment related to Russian interference and influence operations in that election. They say the intelligence community's 2017 assessment that Russia's efforts to influence the race reflected a significant escalation by the Kremlin and has direct bearing on Trump's confidence or lack thereof in the security of the 2020 election and helps explain the basis for him to have been skeptical about the absence of foreign influence in that year's race. The motion, which glosses over the fact that Trump was the intended beneficiary of Russian interference in 2016, is pending. Even if it's unlikely Trump's lawyers will be able to persuade Chutkin to order prosecutors to produce the materials, the request opens a window into a line of defense the team could raise. In a response, federal prosecutors said they were not in possession of the classified information being demanded 
and that the request was part of an effort to delay the case. They also say there's no evidence the 2020 race was tainted by foreign interference. Meanwhile, Smith's team sees 2016 as relevant for other reasons. The prosecutors say they want the jury to hear Trump's historical record of sowing doubt in election results, including in 2016, when he claimed without evidence before Election Day that there was widespread fraud and refused during a debate with Clinton to promise to respect the results of the election. The behavior started even earlier, Smith's team notes, when false Trump, Trump falsely claimed during the 2012 election that voting machines switched votes from Republican candidate Mitt Romney to Democrat Barack Obama. The defendants' false claims about the 2012 and 2016 elections are admissible because they demonstrate the defendant's common plan of falsely blaming fraud for election results he does not like, as well as his motive, intent, and plan to obstruct the certification of the 2020 election results and illegitimately retain power, prosecutors wrote. Though the federal rules of evidence don't permit prosecutors to prevent evidence of prior bad acts to prove a person's character, they can do so to establish intent, motive, or preparation, which is what prosecutors say they want to do here. Such evidence could be compelling for a jury to the extent it shows Trump's effort to undo the 2020 results was part of a long-running pattern of behavior, said Tamara Lave, a professor at the University of Miami Law School. When Trump takes the stand, or when the lawyers argue, he didn't mean this, he was just saying this, that's just Trump's way, he's just over the top, the government gets to say, no, that's not what's going on here. You've seen this over and over and over again. And so the fact that it's been going on for so long is an indication that there's nothing accidental about it, she added. And now an article from Nashville, Tennessee, Superstar Duo Open Free Toy Shop for the Needy. When country music star Brad Paisley and his wife, actress Kimberly Williams Paisley, helped create a free grocery store in Nashville, Tennessee, their goal was to give families in need the ability to choose their own food in a place that felt like a normal store. This year, the store is offering that same dignity of choice to parents looking for gifts for the holiday season. During a recent two-day event, 400 families shopped at a free toy store stocked with brand new toys, video games, stuffed animals, scooters, clothes, makeup, and musical instruments. The emotional aspect of being able to give your child something your child wanted versus just something to sort of get you through the holidays, that's such a load off the minds of somebody who maybe didn't think they were going to be able to do that, Paisley said. Nashville resident Stephanie Brody got enrolled at the store when she was a caregiver to her mother, and they both enjoyed getting to shop for the foods that they needed for their diets. Her mom has since passed, and now she's taking care of five grandchildren, including four under the age of 15. Last week, Brody and her granddaughter, the Delegant Hartsfield, 
picked out armloads of toys, musical instruments, beauty products, and clothes for the family, a much-needed blessing when she's trying to save money to replace a broken stove this year. It's a very much dignified process, and it gives you the freedom of choice, said Brody, who wore a paisley print dress in honor of the paisley family. So we have choice in what we present to our children, and we have choice in what we feed and put on the table, which, of course, empowers you. The Paisleys got a sneak peek before the free toy store opened, marveling over the stacks of gifts, wrapping station, Christmas trees, and holiday decorations. Volunteers and staff from Belmont University and the store spent hours unpacking and organizing all the donated toys into sections and decorating while listening to Christmas music. The celebrity couple brought the idea of a free grocery store to Nashville after seeing the concept years ago at the Unity Shop in Santa Barbara, California. When the store launched in early 2020, it was just weeks after a tornado hit the city and before the global pandemic made food access an immediate problem. The store and its staff adopted turning into a food delivery service for older people and delivering a million meals in the first year of operation. The store has an enrollment process each year, and to qualify, a household's total annual income has to be at 200% or below the federal poverty line. In addition to the free groceries, Belmont University, where Paisley graduated, now offers additional services to low-income families, including financial literacy events, music therapy, and medicine management. People come on hard times, and we want this to be a safe, welcoming place for everybody. Whether you're volunteering or whether you're needing the services, Williams Paisley said, it's just a community, and we're all in it together. Brody said the store and Belmont give her a bridge to resources she needed, whether it was a cooking class or homework help, especially when taxes, inflation, and real estate prices have made it harder to live in Nashville. I love Nashville. I don't want to get pushed out, and this has afforded me to be able to stay here for another year, Brody said. The store received about 2,000 donated items, about half of which came from the Nashville area, and the other half from First Responders Children's Foundation, and raised $20,000. Parents will be able to drop off their kids at a church next door where they can play and drink hot chocolate while the adults shop and get gifts wrapped. There are plans for the toy store to become a recurring event, but Williams Paisley noted the store would need year-round donations to keep people fed. We're still not serving everybody that we want to serve, Food insecurity is on the rise. The USDA just released its report saying 17 million households in this country are facing food insecurity, and that's on the rise from 2021, Williams Paisley said. There's so much we want to do, and really like the toy store has shown us that we can keep going and we keep expanding and growing. Paisley admits this is his favorite season of the year, even suggesting he might show up at the toy store in a Santa costume.
In national and world news, we find an article entitled Zelensky Pleads Cause. Moscow launches aerial attack as hackers hit telecom company. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky used inspirational words, optimistic resolve, and a nod to Christmas in appealing Tuesday to leaders in Congress for U.S. aid for his fighters in the war with Russia. But after hours of talks on Capitol Hill, additional American support appeared to be in grave doubt as Zelensky arrived at the White House to huddle with President Joe Biden. The U.S. already provided Ukraine $111 billion since Russian President Vladimir Putin launched his grinding invasion more than 21 months ago. But Republicans insist on linking any more money to strict U.S.-Mexico border security changes that Democrats decry. The White House warns if new money isn't provided by year's end, it will have swift consequences for Ukraine's capacity to hold its territory, let alone take back land captured by Russia. Meeting with Zelensky in the Oval Office, Biden said, Mr. President, I call on Congress to do the right thing, to stand with Ukraine, and to stand up for freedom. He added, Congress needs to pass the supplemental funding for Ukraine before they break for a holiday recess, before they give Putin the greatest Christmas gift they could possibly give him. Zelensky made his own case during his brief White House appearance with Biden and his private meetings with congressional leaders that Ukrainian forces have fought fiercely to push back the Russian invasion with the help of American and other Western allies, and it's no time for Ukraine's friends to step back. The fight we're in is a fight for freedom, Zelensky repeatedly said in the meetings on Capitol Hill, according to lawmakers. Biden has called for a $110 billion U.S. aid package for Ukraine, Israel, and other national security needs. He expressed a willingness to engage with the Republicans as migrant crossings have hit record highs along the U.S.-Mexico border. But Democrats oppose proposals for expedited deportations and strict asylum standards as a return to Trump-era hostility toward migrants. Meanwhile, Ukraine came under heavy attack from the air and from cyberspace on Tuesday, local officials said, as nearly 600 Russian shells, rockets, and other projectiles rained down on a southern region and unidentified hackers knocked out phone and internet services of the country's biggest telecom provider. Ukraine also claimed a successful hacker attack against Russia's national tax system. From New York, an article entitled Santos Attorney is Optimistic. Former lawmaker is in plea discussions over alleged several alleged crimes. Former U.S. Representative George Santos, lawyer, expressed optimism about plea negotiations in Santos' criminal fraud case Tuesday, successfully fending off prosecutors' attempts to speed up the ousted congressman's trial. In Santos' first court appearance since he was expelled from Congress this month, his attorney, Joseph Murray, argued that it was premature to bring the September trial forward while the two parties were in talks to resolve the case.
We should focus on the plea deal. I believe they can be fruitful, Murray told Judge Joanna Seibert in the federal court in Long Island. He also argued that he was struggling to keep up with voluminous materials produced by the government during the discovery process. Seibert sided with Murray, saying she would try to move the case as expeditiously as possible, but that September seemed like the likeliest, earliest possible date based on her current caseload. She set the next hearing in the case for January 23. Santos declined to comment on the case to reporters as he left the courthouse, saying to no one, it's gold, go home. This month, Santos became only the sixth lawmaker in history to be expelled from the House of Representatives. In an interview with WABC Radio that aired early Tuesday morning, Santos said he hopes to eventually regain the trust of the American people and return to public office. I'm not done with public service. I want to go back to Congress, he said. I'm not saying today. I'm not saying tomorrow. I'm 35. I had a lot of things I need to take care of first. I think we all know. The ex-lawmaker faces a slew of criminal charges, including allegations that he defrauded campaign donors, lied to Congress about his wealth, received unemployment benefits while employed, and used campaign contributions to pay for personal expenses, including designer clothing. Among the charges are allegations that he made unauthorized charges on credit cards belonging to some of his donors. Santos pleaded not guilty to a revised indictment in October. Prosecutors revealed in a court filing Monday that they were negotiating with Santos to potentially resolve his criminal case without a trial. And now an article entitled, Georgia Poll Worker, Giuliani Lies Prompted Threats. Trump's associates spread a debunked theory about the election. Scared for her life after Rudy Giuliani and other Donald Trump allies falsely accused her of fraud, former Georgia election worker Wandra Shea Moss told jurors Tuesday she seldom leaves her home, suffers from panic attacks, and battles nightmares brought on by a barrage of threatening and racist messages. Moss told the witness stand on took the witness stand on the second day of the defamation trial that will determine how much the former New York City mayor will have to pay Moss and her mother, Ruby Freeman, for spreading a conspiracy theory that they rigged the state's 2020 election results. Moss and her mother are seeking tens of millions of dollars in damages from Giuliani in the defamation case at the same time He's preparing to defend himself against criminal charges in a separate case in Georgia. The judge overseeing the defamation case has already found Giuliani liable, and Giuliani acknowledged in court that he made public comments falsely, claiming Freeman and Moss committed fraud while counting ballots. The only issue remaining in the trial is the amount of damages Giuliani will have to pay the women. And now an article on the economy entitled Falling Gas Prices Helped Ease Inflation in November, But Some Costs Kept Rising. U.S. inflation ticked down again last month 
with cheaper gas helping further lighten the weight of price increases in the United States. At the same time, the latest data on consumer inflation showed that prices in some areas, services such as rents, restaurants, and auto insurance, continued to rise uncomfortably fast. Tuesday's report from the Labor Department said the Consumer Price Index rose just 0.1% from October to November. Compared with a year earlier, prices were up 3.1% in November, down from 3.2% year-over-year rise in October. But core prices, which exclude volatile food and energy costs, rose three-tenths of a percent from October to November, slightly faster than the two-tenths percent increase the previous month. Measured from a year ago, core prices rose 4%, the same as in October. The Federal Reserve considers core prices to be a better guide to the future path of inflation. The stickiness of inflation in the economy's service sector will likely keep the Federal Reserve on guard against inflation as it meets this week. Fed Chair Jerome Powell has been scrutinizing such costs as a guide to whether underlying inflationary trends are cooling. And that does it for today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette for December 13, 2023. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to the reading of The Messenger for December 13, 2023. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. On the front page, the headline is Slow and Steady. Milhon family preserves a treasure, moves their century-old peg barn. A stately white barn on the old green farm northeast of Jolie had been marking time for decades until the Melon family put things in motion, literally, this November. Spectators of all ages parked along Kyoto Avenue during the noon hour on November 28, 28 to watch a once-in-a-lifetime spectacle. Thanks to the vote house-moving crew from Bradgate, the old barn rolled easily through a field to its new home about half a mile north of Troy Melhon's, Troy Melhon's farm. This is a pig barn, and it was way too nice to tear it down, said Melhon, 50, who lives just up the road from the site where the barn stood for decades in Butler Township in Calhoun County. While no one knows for sure when the barn was built, Melon estimates it was around 1915 or 1920. This is a really big barn, he said. It measures 40 feet by 80 feet, and it is about 30 feet tall. An old wooden sign in the haymow with the words Green's Registered Herefords hints at one way the barn was used decades ago. The barn was part of a farmstead that included a two-story farmhouse corn crib, grove, and small outbuildings. The Melons began demolishing the worn-out buildings after they purchased the property several years ago. The barn, however, posed a different issue. The barn is within a quarter of an inch of square, said Melon, 
who wishes he knew the name of the barn builder, the craftsmanship is superb. When it was clear the barn would be could be moved safely and fairly affordably, Mellon asked his four children, who range in age from 24 to 18, what they thought about moving the barn to the Mellon farm. They all liked the idea, said Mellon, whose family has owned land in Butler Township since 1882, a year before Jolly was founded. The barn included state-of-the-art equipment. The spacious Gambro Roof barn was originally designed to house horses, dairy cows, and hay. It included a milking parlor, two feed rooms, a tack room, and more. It also showcased equipment that would have been state-of-the-art when the barn was new, including a Loudon manure carrier. Manufactured in Fairfield, Iowa by the Loudon Machinery Company, the manure carrier from the old green barn shows a patent date of 1907. Some ag historians have noted that William Loudon's contributions to barns and livestock farming were as revolutionary as what John Deere did for plows. Loudon's manure carriers, sometimes called litter carriers, saved farmers considerable time in moving manure from the barn to the manure pile or manure spreader outside. The carrier was a large rectangular-shaped metal box with a rounded bottom. Overhead tracks enabled the carrier to be moved around the first floor of a barn. Later models featured pulleys and chains that allowed the carrier to be lowered to the barn floor so it could be loaded and raised again to be moved to the next spot. When it was time to empty the carrier, the box could be rotated to dump the manure outside the barn. I'm still deciding what I'd like to do with this, said Milan, who plans to repurpose the Loudon equipment, which had to be removed from the barn prior to the move. While the old green barn hasn't sheltered livestock for decades, previous owners took good care of the structure and even swept out the barn a couple of times each year. The barn still has traces of white paint on the top of the exterior walls and a band of faded red paint around the bottom, although time and the elements have been hard on the building. The east wall was falling off the crumbling concrete foundation. The barn was never anchored to that original foundation. The barn itself weighs about 65 tons, so it wasn't going anywhere, Melon said. When it was time to roll, the Vote House moving crew estimated the total weight at 80 tons with all the moving equipment and the barn. As the rig pulled the barn into the south driveway of the Melone farm, the massive structure glided almost silently to its new location, almost like a large ship passing quietly in a harbor. They made it look so easy, said Ron Hansen of Pomeroy, who watched the barn move to its new home, it's an amazing barn. While the move itself didn't take too long, the Vote House moving crew had started preparing the barn for this process earlier this fall. The Melons also worked for several weeks this fall, removing livestock pens, stanchions, and more from the barn's interior. An area contractor poured the new concrete foundation and floors in late October 2023. 
I'm raising the barn up three feet higher than it was in its previous location because I want to be able to drive a skid loader in there easily, Malone said. After the barn was moved on November 28, the crew positioned the barn onto its new foundation. The Haymow door still faces the south, just as it did when the barn was located half a mile to the southeast. Now we have three generations of barns here, said Malone, referring to the white barn his grandfather Kenneth Malone built in the 1960s, and a metal pole barn around 2005, which are located east and north, respectively, of the former Green Barn. Malone said his family plans to remodel the century-old barn and will add steel siding to the exterior. They look forward to using the barn for a variety of purposes. We'll use half of it for livestock and we'll use the rest of it for living space where our family can hang out, said Malone who has horses, cattle, goats, chickens, and other livestock. We might put some bedrooms in the haymow. Malone knows the renovation process might take a number of years, but his family is up for the challenge. Also on the front page, an article entitled, With Pipeline Growth Booming, the U.S. Agency in Charge of Safety Struggles to Keep Up. The pipeline industry added thousands of miles of natural gas, crude oil, and carbon dioxide pipelines to the national network in recent years, but the federal regulatory agency responsible for ensuring that vast system's safety failed to grow at the same pace. Pipeline miles expand every year and are expected to see even faster growth in the near future thanks to major federal laws. The 2021 infrastructure law provided $1 billion for grants for new natural gas distribution lines. And the climate, taxes, and policy law Democrats passed along party lines and President Joe Biden signed last year included billions in tax incentives for carbon capture systems, including pipelines to underground storage sites in North Dakota spurring a slew of new pipeline proposals in the Midwest. But neither bill added money for the Pipeline Safety Program at the Pipelines and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration, or PHMSA, a 600-employee agency within the U.S. Department of Transportation that is responsible for guaranteeing the safety of pipelines that cross state lines. Kenneth Clarkson, a spokesman for the Pipeline Safety Trust, an advocacy group, said the agency has long lacked the funding it needs. PHMSA has been historically underfunded, and unfortunately that is still the case, Clarkson wrote in an email to State's Newsroom. The agency needs more resources to keep up with the safety of our nation's millions of miles of pipelines especially so as more pipelines are continually being added to that total. Pipeline Safety Trust was founded to be a watchdog on an industry and regulators in, 20, in 2003 with money from criminal penalties imposed following the Olympic Pipeline Company explosion in Bellingham, Washington in 1999. That disaster killed two children and an 18-year-old, and caused at least $45 million in property damage 
after nearly 250,000 gallons of oil spilled from a ruptured, ruptured pipeline and caught fire. PHMSA Deputy Administrator Tristan Brown told the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee's Railroad, Pipelines, and Hazardous Materials Subcommittee at a March hearing that the agency has had to work leaner as its responsibilities have grown without a subsequent rise in resources. PHMSA's oversight responsibilities continue to grow, both in terms of the types of facilities we regulate as well as the number of facilities we regulate, Brown told the House panel. We have had to continuously operate relatively leaner as compared to our expanded universe of regulated facilities. Brown is the top PHMSA official because the agency has not had a Senate-confirmed administrator since the end of the Trump administration. Biden has not nominated anyone for the role. Spokespeople for PHMSA did not substantively respond last week to messages seeking comment. PHMSA's budget is the smallest of DOT's eight agencies, not including the government-owned nonprofit Great Lakes St. Lawrence Seaway Development Corporation. Its annual appropriations are less than half what the next smallest, the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration, is allocated. PHMSA received $319 million in regular appropriations last fiscal year, with just more than half, $161 million, allocated for pipeline safety. As of March, the agency had 207 inspection and enforcement workers on staff. By comparison, the Federal Rail Administration employs nearly 400 safety inspectors. The Federal Aviation Administration employs more than 14,000 air traffic controllers. Asked by New York Republican Mark Molinaro in March why rulemaking at the agency took so long, Brown said PHMSA was overwhelmed with new responsibilities in a fast-growing area. Natural gas, for example, triple what it was five years ago, Brown said. Carbon dioxide, hydrogen. $100 billion in incentives. We have zero people, zero full-time employees focused on that. Our ability to get things done is directly proportional to the resources that Congress gives us. Molinaro said he didn't accept that more funding would mean a better job by the agency. But Bill Karam, the executive director of the Pipeline Safety Trust, told the panel that Congress should provide a substantial increase to PHMSA's authorized funding to reflect the enormous increase in their charge. A bill the House Transportation Panel approved last week would boost annual funding authorization for the agency, putting the total at $201 million for pipeline safety. But increasing funding authorization doesn't necessarily translate to more federal inspectors. The most recent authorization bill, passed in 2020, required that the agency have 247 pipeline inspectors on the job in fiscal 2023, but PHMSA was 40 short of that number this year. The need for pipeline inspectors will only become greater in coming years 
as the incentives for new carbon dioxide pipelines spur construction at about 5,000 miles today. Pipelines carrying carbon dioxide could grow to 100,000, Clarkson wrote. Ethanol-producing states in the Midwest are seeing particular interest in carbon dioxide pipelines as the carbon byproduct of the region's ethanol industry is more easily sequestered and transported to underground storage facilities, primarily in North Dakota. The proposed pipelines have caused controversy with local landowners. North Dakota's Public Service Commission denied an initial permit for Summit Carbon Solutions, which has proposed a $5.5 billion pipeline network that would carry CO2 from ethanol plants in five states to North Dakota storage facilities. The company has appealed, and state regulators are re-evaluating the application. PHMSA has not yet written regulations for hydrogen and carbon dioxide pipelines. The House bill would require those rules to be written, but only provides minimal direction on how to draft them, Clarkson wrote. The lack of rules has been an issue in citing decisions for carbon pipelines in Iowa and neighboring states. In Illinois, two engineers for the state's Commerce Commission said the agency should delay pipeline siting decisions until the new rules are final. Pipeline opponents have raised similar arguments with the Iowa Utilities Board. The regulator also does not really shift inspectors geographically, as more pipelines come online in certain places, said Robert Clarios, an administrative manager at the National Association of Pipeline Safety Representatives, a coalition group of state officials. There's no specific focus based on miles of pipeline, he said. I've never seen anything where PHMSA focuses on, you know, oh, you guys have had a lot of pipelines, so we're going to give you extra attention. They just don't do that. With PHMSA, a relatively small agency, the responsibility of ensuring the safety of the growing network of pipelines throughout the country falls largely to state agencies. States employ 435 pipeline inspectors, more than twice as many as PHMSA. State inspectors fill a vital role in the national mission system of pipeline management. Christopher Mele, the Legislative Director for Energy Policy at the Coalition Group of State-Level Regulators, the National Association of Regulatory Commissioners, said, Without the states, they couldn't do it, Mele said of PHMSA's ability to inspect the nation's pipelines. It would take them a number of years to gear up. PHMSA is constantly short of staff, as it is, as far as inspectors. But state regulators often feel they are not properly funded by the federal government for their role in overseeing the nation's pipeline network. By law, state pipeline agencies can be reimbursed by PHMSA for up to 80% of their costs, though that cap is never reached, according to Mele, the highest reimbursement rate states have received since 2016 is 70.5%, he said. The committee-approved bill would increase funding for state reimbursement, 
but would still only amount to about 72% or 73% of states' costs, he said. And while the reimbursement rate for states has not risen dramatically, federal requirements for inspections have expanded in recent authorization laws, Mele said. So we're faced with a pretty large unfunded mandate situation, he said. And finally, on the front page, an article entitled, Feenstra Seeks Support for Retired Police Canines. Bill would create new grant program. After a career of chasing down criminals and sniffing out illegal drugs, police dogs typically retire to the homes of their human partners. There, they transition to a life as a regular pet, doing things like playing with the kids and begging for treats. But at that point, their human partners usually become responsible for all veterinary bills. U.S. Representative Randy Feenstra has introduced legislation to provide a little help with those bills. The measure introduced by the Republican from Hull is called the Honoring Police Officer and Canine Service Act. It would create a $5 million grant program within the Department of Justice to assist law enforcement officers with expenses incurred by retired police dogs. The grants would be awarded to nonprofit organizations that assist the owners of retired police dogs. The money would be used to pay for veterinary care, including prescriptions. In my conversations with police and sheriff's departments across the 4th Congressional District, Officers themselves often cover the expenses associated with veterinary visits and other costs, Feenstra said in a written statement. Our police forces are struggling to hire new officers, and our law enforcement officers already have enough on their plates. They shouldn't be expected to spend their paychecks on routine police dog care and checkups. According to the Congressman's Office, the legislation is supported by the National Police Association Major County Sheriffs of America, International Union of Police Associations, Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association, National Sheriffs Association, and the National Police Dog Foundation. The bill awaits action by committees in the House of Representatives. On page two from Juneau Beach, Florida, an article entitled 13 Cold Stunned Sea Turtles from New England given holiday names as they rehab in Florida. This Rudolph will not be leading his pals, Blitzen, Dasher, Dancer, Vixen, Comet, and Cupid, through the Christmas Eve sky, but maybe he will lead them back out to sea one day. For now, the seven Kemp's Ridley sea turtles and six of their pals have given holiday-themed names as they are treated at Loggerhead Marine Life Center in Juneau Beach. Other names include Dreidel, Sawadi, Grinch, and Elf. They were among 52 sea turtles flown to Tampa last week from the New England Aquarium in Massachusetts. They were suffering from a condition known as cold stun from the frigid waters in New England, which make them hypothermic. They float at the surface. They can't eat. They can't drive and eventually wash up on shore said Marika Weber, a vet technician at Loggerhead. She said the New England Aquarium was overwhelmed with more than 200 sea turtles experiencing cold stun. 
That's why 52 were sent to Florida. In addition to the 13 sent to Juneau Beach in Palm Beach County, 16 were taken to Clearwater Marine Aquarium, and the remaining turtles went to Moat Marine Laboratory in Sarasota and the Florida Aquarium in Tampa. The turtles will continue rehabbing at the aquarium, where guests are welcome to visit and watch their journey, and eventually they will return to their natural habitat. Florida saw a record number of sea turtle nests this year. Preliminary statistics show more than 130,840 loggerhead turtle nests, breaking the previous mark from a 2016. The same is true for green turtles, with the estimate of at least 76,500 nests well above the 2017 levels. High sea turtle nest numbers also have been reported in South Carolina, Alabama, North Carolina, and Georgia, although not all set records like Florida.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. Since the dawn of humankind, people have used caves to explore, hold religious ceremonies, create art, or avoid the dangers of weather and predators. Partly because of that, they continue to fascinate scientists today. To create a cave, Mother Nature needs three things. Water, rock that can be dissolved by it, and lots of time. Rainwater, as it falls through the atmosphere, picks up carbon from CO2 to become a weak carbonic acid. By the time it hits Earth, it's about as acidic as coffee. As it percolates through the soil, it picks up more carbon from decaying plants, becoming a slightly stronger acid. If the rock below the soil is limestone, gypsum, or dolomite, the water can dissolve along tiny cracks. Over many thousands of years, the cracks become channels, then tunnels, and could eventually become caverns. Water might also mix with hydrogen sulfide gas seeping up from natural oil and gas deposits to form sulfuric acid, which can also dissolve the rock. Protected from daily and seasonal changes on the surface, caves can maintain a stable temperature and humidity. In these delicate environments, the remains of ancient animals and humans, which could have quickly decayed on the surface, have been preserved for millennia. Deeper, more isolated caves have preserved bacteria and microbes undisturbed for millions of years. These qualities make caves important sites for researchers, natural time capsules. There's probably an amazing cave near you, so take a trip and get to know your Earth. I'm Scott Tinker, dissolving mysteries on Earth Date. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.